0: Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for Justice and Mercy. I'll be discussing Lesson 10 and 11. I am on page 53. So, listen up. Micah is repetitive. So there may be some things in this lesson that seem repetitive, but that's a good thing. Let's start with the first question in the middle of the page. And it is, what is the first phrase in verse 9? Micah 3, 9. You were to write it in all capital letters with an exclamation point listen to this one version says that another one says hear this and another version says now hear this that's what i was looking for and then in the next italics comment um, it was urgent this was an urgent announcement that micah was making who was supposed to listen who was supposed to listen up according to Micah 3, 9, and 11. The leaders, the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, and verse 11, is spoken to the leaders and the priests and the prophets. So we're just um, getting a better understanding of who those leaders and rulers were. We have seen their behavior in chapter 3, and it is pretty bad behavior. Micah said, you hate good and love evil. And he uses even stronger language now. So what do these leaders, priests and prophets do, according to Micah 3, 9 through 11? They abhor justice. They pervert everything that is right. Um, That's from the CSB. The ESV says they make crooked that which is straight. But I do like the way that the... Christian Standard Bible has put it, perverting everything that is right. Yeah. Um, How do they do that? They issue rulings for bribes. The priests teach for payment. Prophets practice divination and make money doing that too. And at the same time that they're doing all that, they are saying that they're leaning on the Lord. And they're saying the Lord is among us. Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Um, These leaders probably didn't think that they abhorred justice. Um, Perhaps their consciences were seared about that. But their actions proved that they did not love God's way, God's law. They did not love justice. They perverted it. They twisted it. They did what they wanted to do. And it looks like they were doing it all for money. On page 54, it says, The problem was in the heart, not the head. Based on Micah 3.11, Why did the rulers think that they would be kept from harm? Well, I said this a minute ago. They thought that they were leaning on the Lord. They were saying, Isn't the Lord among us? And no disaster will befall us. So let's talk about this question have several ladies share their answers. Um, What do you think about the inconsistency between the rulers' beliefs and their behavior? What would you say was the real problem? You could call it hypocrisy. You could say they were deceived by their sin. Um, They didn't truly know the Lord. Uh, They were Worshipping him in action and perhaps going through the motions, but their heart wasn't in it. So they didn't really know the Lord. They weren't really worshiping the Lord if they're just going through the motions. But they maybe thought that those motions were what would um, do good for them. I have a note that their their heart was hard. That's definite. I'm not sure if I already said this, but I have written it down in my workbook. Their worship was cultural. So they were a nation that was supposed to do it. And perhaps they had moved into just a, a tradition, a outward actions, and it wasn't true worship. They took God for granted. And really, how was it about their heart? They did not believe God. They didn't believe what he said that he was who he was they just chose to do what they wanted to do and they chose to think of him the way they wanted to think of him well, what was the promise that the lord had made regarding his temple in first king six, eleven, and really through 13 i'm not sure what's in 14 i don't think i got anything out of that verse so as for the temple the Lord says, if you walk in my statutes, execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments, I will fulfill my promise to you. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. So that there was a big if in the Lord's promise. And they were not keeping um, or obeying what they should have in order for him to keep that promise to not abandon his people. Well, God doesn't ever break his promises, but this was a conditional promise. About a hundred years later, and I think you need to just read that whole sentence to make the whole question make sense. About a hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah urged the leaders to correct their faulty thinking and sinful behavior, as Micah was urging the leaders to do. What was the similar situation a hundred years later, according to Jeremiah 7, 3-10? through God said, correct your ways and your deeds and I will allow you to live in this place. God gave them a chance to repent. Do not trust deceitful words chanting the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you change your ways and actions and you act justly and don't oppress the alien, that's the way that they were supposed to change so that they could stay there. But the, the basic similarity that I have noted is that the people during Jeremiah's day were also, it says, they were trusting deceitful words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, meaning it's here among us, the Lord is among us, so nothing's going to happen to us. The temple of the Lord is here. He's not going to destroy his temple. They were forgetting what God had said. Um, in the middle of the box there is a sentence that uh, summarizes what's going on in the top half of this page that we've been talking about. Micah's words were a dire warning against the complacency that can take God's love and reject his lordship. So it's like, oh yeah, he loves me, he loves me, and I can do anything I want. No, that's, that's rejecting his lordship, and that's not really recognizing who God is not the right relationship. Under the box, how did Jesus warn people to make sure that their faith and their works were connected in Matthew 7, 20 through 23? Jesus said, look at their fruit. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven because it's not just about words. Only the one who does the will of my father. Many will say, Didn't we prophesy and drive out demons and do miracles in your names? Well, those are showy things. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. So um, those who were, uh, according to Jesus here, prophesying, driving out demons, doing miracles, they weren't doing the complete full will of their father. They were just doing these showy actions in Jesus' name. But they didn't have a right relationship with him. I think you need to read the italicized paragraph as a transition to the next question. Faith must be real, and good works will show that it is. Another ominous declaration of prophecy is uttered by Micah, who is authentic in his trust of the Lord, and he's filled with the Lord's Spirit. So what will definitely happen and why, according to Micah 3.12? Micah said, Because of you, and he's talking to those leaders, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the temple's mountain become a high thicket. Oh, I wrote that in my words, I think. I can't remember if I got that temple's mountain out of of a translation or if I just did it. So when someone shares their answer, if they have put it in their own words, about the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem and the destruction that's coming upon the temple and the temple mount, if they put it in their own words, if that's the first answer, great. But if someone reads a Bible verse and it just doesn't, um, well, hopefully it'll make sense because we're doing the study and we're seeing as a whole what is happening. But sometimes this verse can sound um, cryptic in code um maybe not very clear so i'm encouraging you to have the ladies explain this in their own words do they understand what's happening here god is going to plow uh turn up zion meaning the city of jerusalem the the mountain where the temple was it's all going to become ruins And this high thicket, what are some other ways that that's been described? A place where uh, scrub brushes are growing or some say um, a forest or lots of trees. makes sense that there are lots of just scrubby little bushes growing up there, the high thicket. So this is a devastation, and that's the word that I used at the top of page 55. A devastation beyond their wildest imagination would come upon the promised land. And this is because the Lord is faithful to his promises. This is one aspect of his justice. And he always does what is right. He keeps his promises. So we looked at this verse in Deuteronomy 32, 4. How is the Lord described here? He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just. He is a faithful God without prejudice. He is righteous and true. So that's a beautiful, wonderful description of God for us. In the next paragraph, I have said that the Lord judges his people, his city, his land, and his temple in a very destructive way. But that's nothing compared to The devastating judgment that came from the Lord upon his own beloved son, Jesus. And then there is this incredible statement. The justice of God made a way for our salvation. So we want to think about that. With reverence and gratitude, note the justice, the judgment, the wrath of God that was carried out on Jesus Christ, Son of God, based on Isaiah 53, 5 through 10, and note the reason for the judgment. There was a lot here, I know, and I wrote small and still really couldn't write everything. Verse 5, let me see. I think here's what I did. I have written, okay, here's the justice of God and his judgment. And I've made notes from verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. So I'll share those. Um, Jesus was pierced, crushed, punished for our transgressions and iniquity. So that answers, I mean, you know, it's in the verses. So you're answering several questions at the same time. We, uh, verse 6, we went astray, and the Lord punished him, Jesus, for our iniquity. And verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. So you hear, and this is familiar territory probably, these words and this passage, but we're trying to think about this punishment And the specifics of punishment, the specific judgments that God carried out on Jesus, on Him instead of on us. He pierced Him, crushed Him, punished Him. The Lord punished Him for our iniquity. The Lord oppressed Him and afflicted Him. Verse 8, He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. He was cut off. That's His death. He was struck. I mean, really? Truly, they hit him. They struck, the soldiers struck him. And the Lord said he did it for my people's rebellion. And we have seen that word rebellion in our study of Micah. Uh, We understand that sin is rebellion against God and his ways. So I didn't really um, define the wrath of God, but those were the results of the wrath of God against sin. And he poured out his wrath against sin on his son in the ways that I've just described. And then um, I just have another comment about the justice of God, as I was just thinking about God doing what was right here. This is mysterious, isn't it? Jesus did nothing wrong. He did no violence. He spoke nothing wrong. But the Lord crushed him. And that to our minds, I mean, it is opposite of what God has said that he would do. He says he will uh, reward those who do right and recompense those who do wrong. And now it seems flipped with Jesus, but that shows us how incredible this was, and it is also showing us that God allowed Jesus to take our place. So we're the ones who did wrong, and the judgment that we deserve because sin has to be judged. The judgment we deserve came upon that innocent man, uh, the God man. So I hope that the the substitution of Jesus in our place will not just be words that we say and like oh yeah i know jesus is my jesus in my place but just thinking about why he did not deserve this how is that justice i think it emphasizes and helps us see how he substituted and and god decided that that was the right way to carry out the judgment against sin that had to happen and it just Still mind-blowing and mysterious. Um, and I'm really overwhelmed with emotion as I think about it. That's, that was the grace of God, the love of God, the justice of God. All together. The mercy of God. It, it's all there. Wow. So praise the Lord for what he did. And back to the statement right before that question. The justice of God made a way. For our salvation. Perhaps. um, So I hope that y'all will talk about this question some. And perhaps something to ask off book. Might be. Can you imagine the justice of God. If he had not. Put Jesus in our place. Um, There would be no salvation. So that makes it. Um all the more sobering well once you have um kind of come to the end of that discussion the next question is about jesus but in a different way what does isaiah 42 1 through 4 tell us that jesus who is the servant of the lord what does he do regarding justice um, this Isaiah 42 says he will bring justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he establishes justice. So he knows what it is and he's all about it and he's going to make it happen. What does 1 Peter three eighteen tell us was the purpose of Jesus suffering. Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to god so jesus knows all about justice and injustice and jesus himself this is not in the workbook i'm just thinking about it (laughs) carried out justice in loving what was good and because he Loved what was good, and he loves God, and he loves justice. He put himself in our place. He he allowed himself. He obeyed the Lord's call and commission on him, and and he did it for us. So we have the the um, God the Father carrying out His justice. We have God the Son giving Himself for the sake of justice. Wow. And there's a tremendous result because of this. As we noted previously, a change in heart is necessary for someone to love justice. Note the changes described in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21. These changes result from believing that Jesus died in your place. Um, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away new things have come and verse 21 says that he god made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us so the question at the bottom of page 55 if you haven't already been talking about this which i've kind of been trying to weave this in but do you love the justice of god So you can read the whole question at the same time, but you might want to go back and and really pause and ask one at a time. Do you love the justice of God? Do you love the God of justice? And please comment as to whether this is hard or easy for you and why. So read the question, ask the ladies, you know, let's let's discuss this. Do you love the justice of God? Pause and see if anybody answers that question. Do you love the God of justice? I said that um, the justice of God is so good to ponder. I am thankful for it. I trust the justice of God. And I am thankful to be growing in my my, my, my understanding of it and my love of it. And yes, I do love my God of justice. Is this hard? Well, right now I am not faced with something that is causing me to question him or feel injustice against me. I can imagine that someone who is experiencing injustice in the world may be um, may struggle with loving the justice of God and loving the God of justice when, when it doesn't... F- Feel like he is bringing about justice upon you. But that's a trial. And in that trial, God is the one to look to when you are experiencing injustice from someone on earth here. Um, He is the Holy One. He is perfect and wise and good. And we have evidence of his justice and because of that, we have hope for what he will do in his justice in the future. And we may not see a, a um, full carrying out of God's justice against injustices that happen in our lives. We may not see that until our life on earth is over. And that is a time that we are... While we're there, this is a time to pray for God's grace and mercy and strength in our lives and for those who are committing the injustice. Because as long as they're breathing, hopefully they will have the opportunity to repent and know God's justice for them, which would include forgiveness of sins, as we've just seen that he poured it out on poor Uh, His judgment out on Jesus so that people can be forgiven. So that is a big discussion in the way that we end that lesson. But there's another lesson to come. And there's not really a good transition from one to the other. Except for the fact that because Jesus gave himself. And because Jesus is the one who's going to bring justice about on earth. He's coming back, and Mike is going to talk about what life will be like when he comes back. Lesson 11. Are you ready for that? <laughs> ready? How about eager? Well, I shared a fun story about my daughter Emily's engagement. It was a big event, and I was just thinking about all the planning that was going on into this big event. What a surprise the announcement was for her. And that was to set the stage for us to look at this big, wonderful, amazing announcement coming from Micah. And it was a complete shock because of the state of Judah at the moment and what Micah has just said. I mean, In this written record of Micah's messages, there is quite the contrast between Micah 3.12 and Micah 4.1 so i would like for you to remind the ladies what micah 3:12 said and i am looking back at the bottom of page 54 where i have basically written the verse micah 3:12 because of you leaders of zion zion will be ploughed like a field jerusalem will become ruins and the temple's mountain will become a high thicket bad news and then all of a sudden there's this amazing good news lots of details. First question at the bottom of page 56, when will this big worldwide change happen that Micah described? When will it happen according to Micah 4, 1 and 6? Depends on your Bible translation. Most of them say in the last days or the latter days for verse 1. And verse 6 says on that day. So this is parallel language here. And it is the Hebrew phrase Akarit Hayamim. Akarit. Akarit Hayamim. Anyway, the CH is a hard K sound. And the M um, I M is like M E E M in English. Hayamim. Which literally means the end of days. The end of days, the latter days. When this present age is coming to a close and the world to come is about to begin. So the Millennial Kingdom, and I'm sure I will say this in my talks along the way, because we're going to be in this Millennial Kingdom discussion for uh, a couple of weeks. Um, that's not the um, last chapter of the book. <laughs> it's getting towards, well, I mean, in the last chapter... There is no last chapter in God's book because of eternity, but there will be a lot. La- it's the last chapter of the book on earth, but it's a long chapter because it's a thousand years. Okay, at the top of page 57, we are considering these last days. What did Jacob say to his sons in Genesis 49.1? He said, gather around and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. That's the CSB. Um, New King James says, in the last days. Another one says, in the future. So Jacob, wow. he's Okay, boys, let me tell you. Here's what's going to happen to you in the future. What was declared by Moses in Deuteronomy 4.30? Moses said, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, you will return to the Lord your God in, the, in later days and you will obey his voice. Some versions use the phrase latter days. Um, The New Living Translation says, you will finally return. So that, I mean, we understand what is being said, but it does not clarify in that particular translation the phrase in the last days. So it just kind of loses the specific timing when you read Deuteronomy 4.30. In the New Living Translation. And what was told Daniel? What was Daniel told in Daniel 10 14? The angel said, I have come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the last days. ESV says in the latter days. NIV says in the future. And um, the angel says, the vision refers to those days. So we were really just looking at this phrase. The last days, and one of the reasons we're highlighting that phrase is because the whole Bible begins in the beginning. So there's a big picture, isn't that fascinating? God created the Bible, spoke His message to the word to um, the writers, and they recorded His words, and through His holy spirit he has indicated there was a beginning and there's an end but it's not the end so we tried to make a simple timeline to wrap our minds around what might feel like time travel and the timeline has to have the arrow going back to eternity past and the arrow going forward to eternity future you were to mark creation i put it as close to the eternity past arrow as I could but not in the arrow and then the last days I have um, kind of a section with parentheses and it's close to the eternity future arrow and then you were to divide the timeline into this present world and the world to come and I have um, highlighted the Eternity future arrow, the arrow on the right side of your page, that's the world to come. So um, this present world is basically the um, parallel lines that are running horizontally across the page. Uh, This present world is now on earth, and the last days are included in this present world. So I realize that there may be a little bit of uh, confusion, and there may it may have sounded like the end of days. you mean is the world to come, but it's not. So you mean end of days, is the end of the days of this present world, and then there's more eternity, future. Okay, um, I'm going to put a picture of my timeline on my website at the leader's guides for this um, lesson so you can see it visually what i've just tried to talk about on page 58 let's have some fun talking about this what magnificent changes to life on earth will happen according to micah 4 1 through 8 and this is what will happen in the last days the last days of life on earth okay regarding the land the Temple Mountain is raised up higher than any other mountain. I also put from verse four: grapevines and fig trees are growing and they're producing, so the land is fruitful. Um, it's it's healthy and productive land, and there have been top a lot topographical changes regarding the house of the Lord. Oh, sorry, you might want to go around the circle to do this if your ladies feel comfortable doing that. But if you were to do that, if you were to go around the circle, then you could have other ladies add into the different categories. So people might not be comfortable with their answer, and they may be more comfortable just hey, everybody share what you got in this category and, and collect because you can have some repetition and one thing can, can, one thing that's in one category could fit in another category as well. Regarding the house of the Lord, which is the temple, it is on this high mountain, on this mountain, which is raised up above the hills. People stream to it and God is there. Regarding nations, Many nations go to the temple to learn from God. Disputes are settled. There is arbitration for nations. There is no war between nations. Regarding the Torah, which is the law, and regarding teachings, um, this is a little bit of a repetition. Many nations will come to Jerusalem to learn the law. So they're coming to the mountain, uh, the house of the Lord. They're coming to the temple. They're coming for instruction. The Instruction and the word of the Lord will go out from Zion. It will go out from Jerusalem. So it will be shared and taught. Regarding judgments, the Lord will, desettle, will settle disputes among many peoples. And there will be arbitration for strong nations. The Lord rules in Mount Zion. So this is when he's carrying out his justice, like we saw in the previous lesson, Isaiah 42. Regarding peace, there is peace. The Lord brings it. And this, when I'm saying the Lord, I'm saying God, and really it's the Messiah, but it doesn't say Messiah in any of these verses. So this, I haven't use that word in my answers Um, regarding peace so the lord is bringing peace through his messiah through his king through his shepherd there is no fear in israel weapons become tools for farming and so there are no swords there there's no war there's no training for war this is the peace that is among people regarding worship Israel will walk in the name of Yahweh forever. How great is that? And regarding prosperity, from verse 6 and 7, it says, Israel becomes a strong nation. And this word strong, I think I'm bringing this up in a later lesson that we haven't gotten to yet. But it can mean um, numerous, a lot of people. It's a strong nation because it's a big, large nation. A lot of people make it strong. And verse 4 said the grapevine and fig tree are there, so there's no fear for their food. There's abundance from the land, and that's prosperity. So those are the details from Micah 4, 1 through 8 that we're getting an overview of, and we are going to spend more time on these different aspects of the millennial kingdom in lessons to come. There are so many aspects to this wonderful time in the future, and there are many other scriptural references to it. That, we're going to not look at all of them right here, but we'll start getting a view of a few other things. Well, Micah began by telling us about the mountains. So, I have some fill-in-the-blanks. Just have someone read. Maybe one person can read both of those sentences above the box. Fill-in-the-blanks. According to Micah 3.12, Zion is plowed like a field. Jerusalem is ruins or a heap of rubble. The mountain of the temple is a hill. Uh, it's like a thicket. It's overgrown with brush. It's a wooded height. I'm giving you option, different options that could be filled in the blank there. And according to Micah one, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain. And it will be exalted above the hills. So again, there's that tremendous contrast between what god would allow to happen to mount zion in jerusalem and then what he's going to do to it and what he will bring about for the millennial kingdom at the top of page 59 how is the mountain of the lord described in psalm 48 one through three and verse eight and psalm 68 It's Mount Zion, the city of our God, the city of our great king. It's called a holy mountain. It rises splendidly. It's the joy of the whole earth. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. It is the city of the Lord of hosts, and it is established forever. It's the dwelling of God, and he will live there forever. Isn't that? That's just so beautiful, especially as we're thinking about all of that in relation to the millennial kingdom and this this point in time. According to Acts 1, 10 through 12, what did the angels tell, what did the angel tell the disciples who watched Jesus ascend from the Mount of Olives into heaven? Jesus was taken into heaven and he would come in the same way. So he went up in the clouds and he'll come down through the clouds. He'll come back. What will happen to mountains, valleys, and rivers when Jesus returns to earth, according to Zechariah 14.4 and 8-11? through The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley. So, the mountain moves. It moves north and south. And On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Half of it goes towards the Eastern Sea. Half of it goes to the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. So I think we got uh, land flowing to the Mediterranean Sea. And I think the the, um, Dead Sea. Summer and winter water flows. The land south of Jerusalem turns into a plain. And people live and never again will experience the curse of destruction." That's a great promise. And then we go to Ezekiel. What did he see in his prophetic vision of the future of Israel? What did you learn from Ezekiel 40 and 43 about the mountain, the city, the temple, and the presence of the Lord? Here are the notes that I made. The mountain is a very high mountain on its southern slopes there's a city and there's a gate around the city and then all of a sudden ezekiel is seeing the temple and a wall around the temple and he sees the glory of the lord enter the temple through the east gate and the lord said this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where i will dwell among the israelites forever do you want to go there (laughs) we will in our glorified bodies we will return to the earth from heaven because we will have been raptured we'll be in heaven during the tribulation we return to the earth with jesus and we see all this on the earth we will go there And everyone else will want to go there too. So we're looking at the people that we talked about or saw about the nations going to the mountain. According to Micah 4, 1 and 2, who is going and how many are going? Peoples will stream to the mountain of the Lord and many nations will go. So these are actually two different words. There's a parallel, but there's a... a little difference, a little nuance we want to pick up. Peoples is the Hebrew word yam. (laughs) If you're from the South, you might want to say yam, and that makes you think of sweet potatoes, but it is sweet that all these people are going. The Hebrew definition is, could be nation, people, kinsmen, and tribe, but it this word is used for large groups of people. And it's used for people in general we have a different word nations the hebrew word goyim and or that goyim is plural goy is singular so i don't know which word going to show up when you look up that strong's 1471 in the verse it's a plural word goyim meaning nations plural and these are gentile nations Heathen nations, meaning that they were not the Israelite nations. So Goyim are anybody that's not a Hebrew or an Israelite, Gentiles. And they were heathens and pagan if they weren't Israelites because they didn't worship God. Um, but these people are now going up the mountain to worship God, so they're not heathens and pag- pagans going to worship God all right i'm turning page 60 based on the word definitions above and what you've already seen in the whole passage what will be the relationship between israel and the rest of the world so up um i didn't read that italicized line but i probably should have the peoples and the goyim are telling us that there are literal geopolitical nations Different ethnicities. Israel is its own nation and people group, and everybody else, there is another, there are various people groups. So you have a multicultural convergence in Jerusalem. Um, What's the relationship between Israel and the rest of the world? What will be the attitude between people of different backgrounds? Israel as a nation is going to be respected. They will be a prosperous nation. They will be welcoming these nations. They will be hospitable. Other nations want to come to Israel and be there in that land. Um, Everybody's getting along. And I'm sure the ladies can share other aspects of this, but this is a time of peace. What joy there can be now and um how about a lot of fun? Uh, it's just going to be a lot of fun too. <laughs> well, what can you do now to live the way the Lord intends for all people to live in the future? What can we do right now? Let's just, can can we who know this and we who know the Lord, can we have an attitude of getting along with each other? I mean, in the church, but if you're an individual with uh, knowing other people, let's be nice to them. Let's not be partial. Let's meet and greet others. Let's respect cultural differences. Um, You can embrace them and enjoy them. I encourage you not to embrace a um, religion of another world nation. Um, Don't involve yourselves in practices of religious things from other world religions. I'm not saying any of that very well at all, but beware. Um, But it's going to be wonderful to be able to rejoice before the Lord with peoples from all over the world. It's just going to be good. better than good. We'll we'll keep thinking about these things as we go through these lessons. You can close this with the uh, comments in the italicized paragraph. There will be a rushing river of people going up the mountain, a constant flow. Everyone will want to worship the Lord and learn from him. That gives us all joy. We're looking forward to seeing that happen when Jesus comes back and reigns as king. I hope you have um, two really good discussions of these lessons. Um, They are connected, even though we kind of go from one topic to another. They are dependent on each other. Thank you again for your time and your leadership. That's all for now.